Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with doctors Debbie Reese and Jean Mendoza, who are both educators and who recently adapted Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's landmark book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, into a text for young people. It's out now from Beacon Press, and I'm super excited to have them both on the phone. Hey, how's it going today? Pretty well, thanks. Doing fine. Thank you for asking us. Oh, of course. I'm so glad to get to speak to you today about this book. And I guess just for our listeners' uh, sake, would you mind uh, telling us your your name and title just so they can recognize the voice? I'm Jean Mendoza, and I'm one of the co-adapters of the Indigenous People's History of the United States for young people. And I'm Debbie Reese, most known in children's literature for my website, American Indians in Children's Literature. Oh, perfect. Well, again, I am very happy to be talking to y'all specifically about this book, which is really interesting and I think really important. And to kind of get us started, I'd love to hear how both of you became involved in adapting it. Okay, well, um, Debbie and I have known each other for 20 years or so, and we've worked together a lot since the days when we were both PhD students in education at U of I. We both got involved in trying to get the university's fake Indian mascot removed Hmm. and in getting a Native American student house started and an American Indian Studies program on campus. We've also worked together a lot on writing and presentations. So um, when Debbie said she wanted to do this project, if I would do it too, I said yes. Um, And once we got going on it, it felt like something that I had wanted to do for a long time without really realizing that's what I wanted to do. My adult life has involved a lot of Native young people, including my own kids and their cousins. And it seemed to me that this book was something that would have benefited them if they'd had it when they were growing up. And we hope it'll benefit the next generation, their kids. And let's see, I guess I was um, contacted by the publisher and by Dr. Dunbar-Ortiz about adapting this book and knew that the project was way more than I could do on my own. So I did ask if it would be okay if Jean came on with me to do the adaptation. And it, like Jean, it's been a, a, a 30-year period of active, activism, of a life of an activist, trying to make change happen with a mascot, but also in children's literature. So um, one of the huge holes that we both identified in the body of children's literature is good nonfiction that doesn't confine us to the past. Um, I should say I'm tribally enrolled at Nambe Pueblo. That's one of the sovereign native nations. It is in the state currently known as New Mexico. Oh, really interesting. It sounds like, you know, this became the kind of culmination of a lot of different things moving together. Um, you, you said both of you have backgrounds in education and curriculum and been working in that. Um, I'm really interested in kind of the nitty-gritty work that goes into adapting what is a major historical work and making it accessible for younger readers. What, what does that look like? Well, it was new to us. We hadn't done it before. Um, so what we found was that a lot goes into it. We, we read and reread Roxanne's original book, and we started working together in a shared Google Doc um, because working together in person wasn't wasn't working out. Um, the Google Doc helped us record our entire conversation so we wouldn't lose things. Um, let's see. Well, we worked with a word limit, and so we had to cut things that were in the original book that we really didn't want to cut. Mm-hmm. Um, 
We try to make the reading level comfortable for teens, but without oversimplifying the concepts or the situations. And when you change the reading level, you can't just use shorter words. You have to make sure the words that you use convey the same meaning. So sometimes that meant we had to go back to Roxanne's sources and even to the sources' sources to get the best idea that we could about what a passage was talking about so we could build the sentences and paragraphs that were accurate. And part of what we kept in mind as, as we were working was our own children. We have, we've, we've raised children in a community that has very few Native families or people in it and were, are, were often in the schools asking teachers not to do the things that they were doing, um, <clears throat> excuse me, with um, bad history and misrepresentation of history. So uh, we knew that this book was important for all people, but we were especially mindful of our own children and of Native children in particular, that they would be reading this book too. So that was that's who we held first and foremost in our mind, was Native children that the words that were in the book, the events and history that it told, was going to, could be unnecessarily painful if we weren't careful in word choice as we uh, turned the original into something that teens could read in a classroom, that um, teachers could use with teens in a classroom that wouldn't invite, um, that wouldn't invite a sense of um, upset or shame mm-hmm. or humiliation. For for example, we didn't we didn't use harsh language, stereotypical kinds of words in there because we didn't want native native kids know those words. Other kids can look them up if they want to, but there's no need for them to be um, used in a classroom when we're trying to get at ideas mm-hmm. and not so much at uh, that kind of hurt that words can do. Yeah, no, I think that's important. That's a lot of responsibility on both your ends. Um, I know the book has just come out this year, this adaptation for it. Uh, what's the response been so far? Very positive. Um, I think, are we in the seventh or the ninth printing now, Deb? Seventh. Seventh, okay, yeah. So there's been a lot of interest, and when we have been on the book tour um, at various bookstores and other places, there's been really strong interest in it. People are wanting it for um, their classrooms and for um you know, to accompany uh, statewide curricula and so on. We were we were working with a high school, a local high school class last week. These are AP students, so advanced placement students, and um, their teacher related um, a moment from earlier in the week when one of the students had read the chapter that has information about the Dakota 38 and the mass execution of those Dakota men mm-hmm. that happened under President Lincoln. And uh, so she wanted to know more about that and did some more research and presented it to her classmates, and and they were taken aback. In in particular, the teacher talked about um, some of the African-American students thinking, wait, Lincoln did that? And so I think part of the reception is that it has been very well-reviewed, but that it is giving students um, insights into people that they have held in great esteem that don't necessarily um, deserve all of that esteem. Yeah, I, I think that's important. And, you know, I, I've talked about this in other interviews dealing with, with, with topics of um, 
similar circumstances about, you know, when I was a student in particular in AP, there'd always be a little section about, and here's what the minorities were doing, whether it was African-Americans or women, it was a small paragraph or like a personal profile. And it seemed unfair uh, to like have that be outside of the main narrative of history. So I, I really appreciate this book for taking what has been um, footnotes and making it the text itself. And I think that's so important. Um, and, and one of the things I really appreciate in the very beginning of the book is you give a note to readers talking about the importance of titles and naming and describing peoples and their history. And I was wondering if you could talk about writing that kind of preface in the notes and just to kind of give a description of that. I guess we are really conscious of the fact that words have power. You know, people like to say words can never hurt me, but they can. Um, words can be confining or liberating. They can be lies or truth. And a lot of the words that get used to talk about Native peoples, Native nations, Native history, um, have been lies uh, or have led to misunderstandings. And one of the things we wanted to do in that note to readers was uh, clarify some of that and, and make sure that that everybody could be on the same page. Do you want to say more about that, Jeff? Yeah, another piece of that was, was and again, it's, it's interesting to reflect back on my life and Jean's life and the work we've done in, in, in Urbana, which is where we both live, that um, over and over again in the mascot work, someone would approach us and say, well, I'm Native American and the mascot doesn't bother me. I like it. Mm-hmm. And that sort of shuts down a lot of, of conversation <clears throat> Excuse me. So we wanted to really push against that wide, widely made claim to a Native identity that people put forth to shut down conversations when activists are saying, let's look at this more closely. So putting all of that information in the, in the note to readers at the front, we felt would push back on some of that as well. Yeah, and that's a really hard balance because you're talking about individuals with particular opinions, but then how do those individuals fit within groups? And those dynamics are really difficult. Um, you, you've talked a little bit about you know coming together over this um, um, activism over the mascot case. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit and kind of um, what the process for that debate was and, and if anything has come of it? Um, I'll just start by saying that I grew up in central Illinois, um, one hour away from um, the University of Illinois, and the images of this chief Illiniwek were everywhere. Mm. It was ambient when I was growing up, and I did not give it much thought until um, our, our daughter came down here for school when we were living up by Chicago, and she started realizing that that. People were interacting with her based on misunderstandings about Native people and ignorance about Native people that they were, that was kind of being, uh, what's the word, kind of being supported by the presence of this fake Indian. Mm. So that kind of helped my husband and me. My husband is a citizen of the Muskogee Creek Nation. Mm. So it, it got us thinking about what to do about that. And then we found that there were people on campus who were, involved in, in trying to change things, trying to get rid of the, that mascot. I think I just lost track of what I was answering, but go ahead, Deb. Uh, okay, when I was going to go to graduate school and come, come to the University of Illinois, I was told about the mascot. Mm-hmm. 
and that it was controversial. <clears throat> I I kind of waved it off. I thought it was not a big deal, but I got here and it was a huge deal. I had no idea how much um, people embrace that kind of thing. There was um, I, in graduate school, you always introduce yourself at the start of each class, and so it, it became known that there was a native person in the College of Education and that her name was Debbie Reese. And so I started getting emails and phone calls from local organizations that wanted me to come to their event and dance. And I would say, no, Native dance that we do is like prayer, and I don't perform my prayer. It, it happens in a certain place and time. Mm. And they said, well, will you come and tell us stories? And I said, no, I'm not a storyteller. I I am a, an academic, though. I'm a scholar, and I'd be happy to come and talk with you about Pueblo Indian culture and history and our nationhood. And the answer to that was, no, thank you. So I began to see the power that the mascot had and became very involved in that work. Part of, um, well, and it's it, it was fruitful, finally, in the end, because the mascot was retired probably 10 years ago. Okay. It's no longer officially the um, mascot of the university, though there is a lot of T-shirts and activities and things that still go on because people can never really let that stuff go. Um, So it's officially retired, but still very much present in town. Yeah, I I get that. Um, Being in New Orleans, there are mementos of things past that don't really die, whether or not they're not officially there anymore. But I think that that's really interesting that uh, that change was able to be made, and maybe in generations in the future that won't be as visible or as um, as held up as as important for for people to come after. I think that's really important. Yeah, you know, to uh, to kind of push back to the book, um, there are a lot of histories of Native peoples that focus particularly on the nineteenth uh, and eighteenth centuries and the the conflicts between uh, colonial peoples and, and them. But I, I think there are less well known works that detail things that have been happening in the twentieth century. I know recently there was a uh, a nonfiction book that was nominated for the National Book Award talking about that thing itself. But I, I was wondering, in both of your opinions and in, you know, kind of looking at adapting this book, what are some of the moments in Native life or, or Native people's history in the 20th century that you wish more people knew about? I thought long and hard about that question. Um, I would say that from, from the 1900s, um, one of the most significant situations that I was not aware of, as a person who grew up in that time, um, in the the 50s and the 60s, was that the government embraced a policy of terminating native nations, just um, the the thinking that they could decide that native nations wouldn't exist anymore in the eyes of the federal government, and they wouldn't be eligible even for what had been promised in treaties and so on. That um, That's something that, that I I wish more people knew about. I wish that I had been aware of it. And along with that, there was relocation, which um, was, I guess you would say, strongly encouraging Native people to leave their communities, leave their uh, reservation communities or their, um, pardon me, their predominantly Native communities, and go to cities. It was uh, a way of trying to assimilate people and to to get rid of the Native nations, really, to make it so that they weren't cohesive and in the same place anymore. Anyway, those are two things that I wish uh, more people knew about from the past hundred years. 
And I guess the things that I want people to know more about is the fact that we are sovereign nations, that we have status as nations. We have a political status that no other minority or underrepresented group has in the United States. And that marks us as very different from everybody else. I, I tell teachers that when they come to my reservation, there's a posted speed limit, and if they drive too fast, the tribal police will pull them over, and they'll have to pay a ticket to the tribal offices, not to some other form of government, because um, that's not taught, that we are systems of government, that we have systems of government that decide who our citizens are and the very mundane things, like how fast you're going to drive on our land. We have jurisdiction over that. And not knowing that very important piece of who we are means that people can look at someone and say, well, that's not a Native person because from their vantage point, that person doesn't have the markers or rather the stereotypical ideas of who Native people are with high cheekbones and dark hair and darker skin. None of that matters to, who a, to how a nation determines who its citizens are, and that that whole concept is something that really needs to be taught to children in schools so that they grow up and understand why why um, laws like the Indian Child Welfare Act are so important. Those That law was passed to keep Native nations intact because during much of this century, um, the, I'm sorry, the 1900s, during the 1900s, Native children were being taken from their families and placed in white white homes. That undermined the family, but also the well-being of those nations. So not understanding that we're nations means that when a Native nation today is trying to exercise its or trying to use that law to protect a, a citizen of its nation, people will look at that child and say, well, that's not a Native child. And um, then the whole media network kicks in to spin that story in uh, a way that's not helpful to the understanding of what sovereignty means. Yeah, no, I think all those things are, are incredibly important. And I know that you uh, dive into different facets of that within the book itself. Um, interesting. Thank you for sharing those. Um, Dr. Reese, this next one is, is pointed towards you. Um, you mentioned it at the beginning, but I know you are the founder of the American Indians and Children's Literature, uh, an organization. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. All right. First, it's not an organization. It's a blog. Is it a blog? <laughs> it's a blog. It's a blog, but I'm sitting here in my office, and there are teetering piles of books, <laughs> my home office, teetering piles of books everywhere, because that's what I did as a professor. I'm retired now. Yeah. That's what I did as a professor, and that's what I continue to do. And part of, part of why I launched that blog was that when you're an academic, you're supposed to publish in, in professional journals and um, I know as a teacher that you can't afford to be a member of those associations. Mm -hmm. And so any of the work that I was doing and, and publishing was not reaching the people who needed it most. So launching the blog was the logical answer to that problem. So I started, started doing my book reviews there and essays and looking for other materials that would be helpful to teachers. So I was creating a resource or maybe a clearinghouse that would help anybody that was working in children's literature. Oh, that's really it's cool. It's made some really cool changes. That It's definitely done the work that I wanted it to do. We have seen books get pulled and edited. I know that editors at the major publishing houses read what I say, and they are very anxious about what I or Jean, because Jean works with me also hmm. on, on the blog, 
what we say about the books that they publish. Oh, wow. I, th I think that's really cool. And again, really interesting to see like that having an effect and, and uh, some sort of way that, you know, people are paying attention and reading that and looking at that. Um, where can people find more information about the blog? All they need to do is search on American Indians in children's literature. Right. And it should come up in their Google search. I, I did use all of those words in the title. <laughs> Well, good. Well, I hope they take your advice and, and go search for that. Um, to kind of wrap us up, uh, a question I, I normally ask everyone at the end of these interviews uh, is, is, is two-pronged. Um, the first part is, what are you reading right now? And the second, um, what are some projects that you're working on or things that are on the horizon for you? Okay. Um, one of the books that I'm reading, I just started it, is Gina uh, Julia Whitaker's as Long as Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock. I just got started, but it's intense and it's powerful, and I hope everybody else does it too. I think it's really good. And the second book that I'm reading is a mystery novel for middle-grade kids by Michael Hutchinson. It's called The Case of Windy Lake, and I'm, I'm reading it, rereading it so that I can blog about it. It's set on a First Nations reserve in Canada. It's about four cousins solving mysteries. It's very contemporary. And one of the subplots involves protesting against a company harming a community's water supply. Oh, wow. So kind of the environmental system carries through there, too. And things I'm looking forward to is um, meeting more people on the book tour and maintaining the website that we did uh, to be a companion for, um, for the book. It's called... Um, the website is iph4yp, that's numeral four, dot blogspot dot com, and it's a blog where people, uh, it's a website where people can go and ask us questions about the book or uh, raise concerns that they have based on what they've read. Um, and it has more information about the book too, including links to reviews of of the book, and so on. So those are things that I'm looking forward to. Oh, cool. I'm reading a book called Distorted Descent, White Claims to Indigenous Identity by Daryl LaRoe. It, um, it's, it's just, it just came out, and it's about claims to Indigenous identity in Canada. Uh, there's an explosion up there of people saying that they're uh, Métis, and it is having a very destructive impact on the actual Métis nations and uh, indigenous people, broadly speaking, in Canada. This is, this is of interest to me because we have a huge problem with that in the United States, too, mm -hmm. um, specific to claims of Cherokee identity, and, and, and Elizabeth Warren is an example of that. So I've been, I've been reading up on um, that kind of history because it, it plays into what we do on the blog. When people write books and submit them, saying that they are Cherokee, then I want to be able to see if that person is in fact Cherokee, or if they say they're Métis. I want to make sure that's, that's a, a claim with substance, not something that's just based on a family story. So I've been studying a lot on uh, claims to Native identity. Mm -hmm. The DNA book um, and work on that that Kim Tallbear does is also another book that I've been spending time with. And as for projects, I I am dipping my um, <clears throat> fingers, I suppose, into uh, a new project that has to do with slavery. Mm. And the uh, reason I'm doing that is because it is a growing body of, of research in adult literature and history and culture. 
um, the idea that Native people um, held slaves and Native people were enslaved. Mm. And looking for that topic in children's books and how that is going to be done is uh, something I've got to be ready for. So I'm studying that body of literature, too. Okay, wow. Well, those are all really interesting things. I'm excited to to hear more about them and check out some of those books as well. Um, well, this has been great talking with you. Uh, I'm a big fan of the book and glad we got to uh, present it here for our listeners. Um, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks for thank having me. That was Drs. Debbie Reese and Jean Mendoza, who recently adapted Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's landmark book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, into a text for young people. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.